Anyway, good. So, yeah, I've cut my hair again. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's spite, actually. You know. you know, losing your hair, I think, okay, if you won't grow hair, I'll get the rest of you. Right? There are a lot of costs to losing your hair, you know. Several friends dropped me. Matt Clay, my German friend, hair gel. You're following this now, aren't you? Yes. But then I was also dropped by that scoundrel, Dan Druff. So there you go. There are, there are pluses and minuses. Now, over the summer, we've been looking at stories that Jesus told. And Keith has introduced that, one of my fellow elders in the church here. And how do stories work? What's, why did Jesus tell so many stories? Because he's invested very heavily in stories. In fact, if you look in through your Bible, a lot of it is stories. And you kind, of short, you kind of think, surely God would just want to tell us what to do. Why does he spend all this time telling us stories? Um, but the thing is, at the end of today, you'll probably remember the stories and forget the point. Right? That is probably like, if I asked you now, what are your favorite TV shows? You're probably thinking, oh, I don't want to tell everybody what my favorite TV shows are. But the likelihood is they'd be shows in which there's a story, in which things happening. It probably won't be, uh, you know, a history program or a science program or stuff like that. It might be, and it may be a quiz program, maybe. But even quiz programs, there's a certain drama to it, isn't there? So in the Bible, there are, there are commands. There are commands. God does say things to us in the Bible. And, and we can get commands. They, that, you know, do not commit adultery. Okay, you get that. Yep, it's clear. And then there are statements like, God is love. Now, Peter, there's a picture here of um, uh, Lewis Hamilton. He has God is love tattooed on his neck. There might be people in the world who think that Lewis Hamilton has said God is love, but actually there was someone who said it before him. And, uh, and that was God himself. He revealed it to be the case. So next slide. Uh, we also get promises from God. And, and we get promises, don't we? We understand what a promise is. Even a child knows. You, you, anyone who's had any children who've got to the age where they can talk and listen will know the experience of saying, but you said, right? The ch- a child will challenge a parent. You said, right? You made a promise. You've got to do this, right? And children will challenge that. So we, we get promises like God, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And there are countless other promises in the Bible. But the Bible also has, as I say, has stories. There's other things as well, but there's commands, statements, promises. There are stories. And actually, I want to say to you, stories are much more powerful than we realize. Unconsciously, you will live the stories that you hear. You'll enact them. Now, you see, commands, statements, promises, they can be static. Uh, stories are dynamic. They're sequences of events, of choices and actions. They have a time scale. So God is love is true all of the time. But before I knew God is love, I was not in the good of that. But at a certain point of time, I experienced and heard that truth, that God is love. And that started to change the way I acted and behaved. That's a story. And then also, while commands and statements and promises can be just quite impersonal things, so there are many people who follow philosophies of life. Christianity is not a philosophy of life. It's not a set of ideas. It is a person. Because a story always involves people. It involves people. And, uh, and so this statement, then, God is love, is a statement about the person of God and what he's like. 
but it lacks content until I truly listen to that story of how he died for me, which is the greatest demonstration of his love. So why does scripture consist of these different, I've picked four word forms, ways of speaking. And uh, the next slide, Peter. Well, commands, they shape our will. When God says, don't commit adultery, he's shaping our will. When statements shape your thinking, when we read God is love, that's changing my thinking about God. When we read a promise, I will never leave you or forsake you, that's shaping my believing. It's inviting me to believe something. Okay, God says he's never going to leave me. Okay, I'm going to believe that. Some of the stories we've heard this morning talked about putting faith in what God has said. So what do stories do? Well, stories shape your loving. Now, um, commands, and, and I want to explore that, right? Commands, statements, promises work in an informative way. There's information you can get and you process it through your head. Stories don't work by processing through your head. They directly shape or form our affections, our aspirations, our desires. And stories make us fall in love with the hero or the heroine or their heroic deeds. So when we ask the question, what do we know when we know a story... We're often puzzled how to answer that. Well, I know what happened at the end of the story, we could say. Um, But actually, it's it's because the way stories work, we don't really have a language for that. And I want to just try and illustrate that. You see, promises, statements, they're things you can learn and you can have an exam about them. So we heard about some exam results. Well done to all the young people who've had GCSEs and A-levels and and, and what they've done, hey? Well done, all of you, and you've maybe had school exams. So there were things you learned and then you can have a paper exam and you can write down and report on what you learned. But there's also other things that you can know. You can have, in other words, you can have knowledge but you can have know-how as well. And most of the day, I don't know about you, we live on automatic. We We decide most of the things you do during the day. You don't do because you sat down and you went through a list of pros and cons in your head and thought, shall I do it that way or shall I do it the other way? You just automatically do it a certain way. So, for example, um, uh, uh, to do with... Um, uh, you might need to go somewhere during the day in your local area, somewhere you go to regularly, and you go there, you've driven there, or you've walked there, or you've cycled there, and when you've got there, do you ever have that kind of experience where you think, goodness, did I go through a red light? Do you ever have that thought? Right? You kind of wonder, did I go through a red light? Because you've got there and you have no recollection of making the journey at all because you did it automatically. Right? You, just, you knew where to go and you just did it because you, you didn't have to engage your brain. You instinctively just drove there. And, you, and yes, you probably did stop at red lights because you're just, you've, been, you've learned and that's what you do, but you don't remember doing it. Uh, in fact, you probably notice when you skipped the lights, because that was when you took a choice to disobey. Right? Now that's an aside. So there's something very instinctual about what we do. And there's another thing. I, I have this. Somebody might ask me, oh, do you know where so-and-so lives? And, and I'm thinking, well, yes, but I can't tell you where, but I could take you there. Right? I don't know the address. I don't know what number, but if I was in the street, I could go straight to the front door. Do you you know that experience? So in other words, in my head, I don't know where they live. But actually, I do. There's some instinctual knowledge of where they live. 
And there are journeys, some journeys I do before sat-navs and all that kind of stuff, where I couldn't, again, I couldn't tell you how to get there, but when I made the journey, I would get to a junction and just know where to go next. Yep. So I'll just leave the cable as it is. So I, I want to have God shape that instinctual part of me because some of the bad things I do are part, uh, reside in that area of my life. For example, recently the Holy Spirit's been challenging me a bit because, I have a, because I've read the Bible and I'm a Christian. I think generosity is a good thing. Yep, you agree with me? Generosity is a good thing. But I felt, I heard someone say something like, delayed generosity is not generosity. And I was very... Hand, there we are, I'm on the hand mic. So, um, and I realised that actually events happen. I think, oh, I could, I could give that in that situation. But then I don't do it straight away. I'm just, I think of it, but I don't do it. And it wouldn't it be great if I just did it? Right? If I just did it, if it had become my habit. And so that, that would be a very important thing. There's a diagram here, Peter, that I want to show. And this, I came across this diagram when I was teaching my daughters to drive. And um, one of whom is here today, and she's a very good driver. They're both very good drivers. And, but this is true for learning lots of things at this, of this kind, right? It could be learning to play the guitar, for example, would be a very similar thing. So initially, you, you are unconsciously incompetent because before I've picked up the guitar, I think, oh, I could just play the guitar. It looks easy. My son-in-law was playing this morning. If I wanted to, I could just pick up the guitar and play it. I'm, I'm unconsciously incompetent. I, I won't be able to play the guitar, but I'm not aware I can't play it because I've never tried. So I can think that I could do it. And the same can be true of driving a car. You kind of think, well, if, once I get in there, it will just, my parents drive, I'll drive. But once you actually get into it, or you pick up that guitar, or you put yourself behind the steering wheel, suddenly you find all the difficulties of it. You find you can't make the car do what you want. It's difficult to slip the clutch. It's hard to steer accurately. You've got to remember to change gear. You don't always depress the clutch. You, di- you, you stall the vehicle, etc., etc. And you, and you strum the guitar. It makes the most terrible noise. It's not working. Then you become consciously incompetent. You realize, goodness, I can't do this and you know that you can't do it yeah and that's part of the learning process actually is to get to that place where you become consciously incompetent you realize okay I do have something to learn I can't do this Um, and at that point some people stop there's no need to stop then right babies don't decide you know try walking the first time fall down think oh dear obviously walking's not for me no you, you you there has to be some pressing on with these things And so you really try, you concentrate really hard, and you really study, you learn about the different chord positions that you have to put your fingers on, etc., etc. And uh, you learn about slipping the clutch. I used to say to my daughters, you know, make the engine sing before you start slipping the clutch. In other words, just get those revs up a bit, and then it's easier when you're slipping the clutch not to stall the car, etc. And so they start to learn, and eventually you become consciously competent. In other words, if you really concentrate, you can do it. And I remember taking my daughters out to drive and and we would set off and for the first 10 or 20 minutes, I'd start to lose interest a bit because they were were doing it. They were just driving. 
But then suddenly errors would start to creep in. And because they'd grown too tired to keep concentrating, and, uh, and, and so I needed to start watching them, saying, wait, no, you need to stop here, or you should have indicated there, or did you check your mirror, da 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 etc., etc. But after a while, I found that I would go out to drive with them, and actually I simply wasn't watching them anymore. I was looking around, oh, that piece of land's up for sale, or oh, that shop's closed down, or there's a new business started there, or they're building a new estate here, or I was just watching all around. And I realized that, at first I felt a bit guilty, well, I'm supposed to be supervising, but then I realized, no, actually, the reason I'm doing that is because they are now unconsciously competent. You've got to that place where I am, where you just get in the car and you drive it, or you get on the cycle and you cycle it, or you just pick up the guitar and you just play some keys, some chords, you know? And you just get to that place of being unconsciously incompetent. And you know, God wants all of us to become unconsciously competent followers of him. Where we actually just naturally choose good things. And, you know, because the truth is some of my automatic reactions during the day can include lying or talking down other people or overeating for comfort or consuming media or all kinds of things can occur in our lives, can't they? We can be watching pornography, getting angry at other people. There can be all kinds of anger issues. There can be stuff like this that happens, and later on the Holy Spirit makes, makes we look back and think, oh, Father, I wish I hadn't said that to that person. But it's like afterwards, I didn't think about it at the time because it was just an instinctual thing that happened. And isn't it great when instead what happens is that we find that we've just been automatically apologetic when we'd done something wrong, that we'd told the truth, that we'd reconciled quickly. We had hope in a situation. We trusted God. We didn't fret. We let go of hurts. We spoke positively. We prioritized people over things, whatever. All those things we, in our heart of hearts, we think that's the life I'd like if it really happened automatically. So scripture teaches us that what we know and what we believe are crucial, but also what we love, that, that instinctual part of us, is very crucial in, a, in the way God is seeking to transform our lives. He's trying to rescue us from our broken humanity. He's taking, because we've rebelled against God, we've gone against God, and he's come in Christ to rescue us. And he's, he wants to change what we believe, he wants to change what we think, and he wants to change what, what we will and he also wants to change this instinctual part of us, this, this thing of what we love. So the question arises, what tools do we use to change that, that, those instinctual ways? And, uh, and I believe that one of, the sto- one, of the sto- one of the tools is stories. And um, I almost said stools then, didn't I? And one of the tools is stories. And also just repeated habits of action. Because the, this... this, this this unconscious incompetence arises when you do things deliberately and after a while the deliberately becomes actually instinctual. Habits become instinctual. And so I'd like to explore that and I'd like to explore it with Psalm 145. It's, you, if you know the book of Psalms, there's 150 Psalms in the Bible. They're the songs of worship of the Old Testament and uh, have you been used for the last 2,000 years by Christians as well. This is the last of the Psalms written by King David. So the rest of the book of Psalms is not by King David. He was a big writer of Psalms. 
And most of these books, most of the Psalms were written about in that era of when King David was on the throne of Israel. It's about a thousand years before Christ. So 3,000 years before now. And we get, first of all, in uh, verses 1 to 2, it begins as a personal prayer of devotion. I will exalt you, my God, my King. It's I. It's him praying out personally, speaking about my God, the King. I will pray. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I'll praise you and extol your name forever and ever. And he's actually announcing his personal commitment to a repeated habit of worship. Can you see that? He's saying, I'm going to keep worshipping. This is my personal commitment. Because I think he knows there's something, something about the repeated pattern of something is, is, in a, it is transformative. It changes your instinctual patterns. It changes that thing which just automatically does things. And actually, it leads to the life we want. Right? It does lead to the life we want. Now, of course, many people... Um, Reading this uh, might say, oh, this is, um, this is very naive and uh, we can be very clever about the things in the Bible like this, about speaking, about worshipping and giving thanks. But these are actually represented just a childlike commitment. This is what I'm going to do. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Right? There used to be an advert for an Australian lager. And they, the guy would be out in the Australian outback and the, his young friend, old guy, and the young friend would say to him, have you, have you drunk Castlemaine 4X all of your life? And the old guy pauses and then says, no, not yet. Right? And the same should be our spirit if, if that's the attitude you can have about a beer. I mean, people are more faithful to their football teams than sometimes than they are to other things. Do you understand? So we can say, no, I'm going to worship God forever. That's, that's, that's where I am, because I know that if I set along that path, and it's a, just a childlike attitude of, of trusting God, which liberates us from fretfulness, just the sort of thing we were hearing testimony about earlier. I'll trust in Father's wise rule. And then verse 3, he interrupts his prayer. He no longer is addressing God as you, but he says, great is the Lord got the slide for this Peter thanks and most worthy of praise his greatness no one can fathom now he's referring to God as his he's making a declaration about God and it's a declaration to himself and again this is such a helpful thing to do so this is a statement statements address our thinking do you remember we looked at that earlier what promises do promises address our will um, statements address our thinking and uh, it's important we speak truth to ourselves because then we think rightly. And so we've, we like to quote what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And here's, again and again in the Psalms, we see how they stop to give themselves a talking to. So he says, no, great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. So he's speaking to himself and, and addressing. And then in verse 4, he goes back to talking to God. But it's a very prophetic prayer, a declaration to God that we will tell God's stories. He says, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. This has been happening this morning here. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your 
awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Now in the New Living Translation, verse 7 reads, They share the story of your wonderful goodness. And this is what we do. And, and this, isn't, this isn't some kind of marketing thing. This is actually transformative. I want to remind us today the reason why it's so helpful to tell the stories of what God is doing in our lives and to keep announcing them, to tell it from one generation to generation, is because as we tell those stories, they write something deep into our hearts. They change that instinctual part of ourselves. We often think that we look at what we desire but the truth is that we desire what we look at. Right? If you want to shape your desires, to control what you look at, control what you listen to, control what stories you listen to, what you look at, and you will shape your desires. So if I am to love God, if my children are to love God, then we proclaim stories and we paint vivid pictures before one another that, that of, of, of heroes of, of faith and of good things. And so David prays out of this, it, 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 saying, I want to follow this repeated pattern of telling good stories. And of course, to feed that, verse 5, he says, I will meditate on your wonderful work. Sometimes to have a story to tell here on a Sunday morning or over coffee with a friend or to that colleague who works next to you in the factory or school where you work. You have to actually think about and meditate and notice the good things God has done. So surely we can uh, be like David in meditating in that way and bringing stories of God's goodness. And then we get another declaration, verses 8 to 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. What great words to declare to yourself, hey? Don't listen to yourself, speak to yourself, right? The Lord is gracious and compassionate. This is actually a paraphrase from something God told Moses about himself in Exodus 34. So God, this is what God said about himself. This isn't what David made up. He remembered because he had the, the first five books, the books of Moses. The Jewish people used those in their worship. So he knew what God had told, said about himself to Moses and he's paraphrasing it. It's, he's lifted that. And I want to tell you, we're supposed to quote God back to himself. Right? We are supposed to quote God back to himself. Just like the child says, but you promised. Right? We are like children to come to God and say, you said that you're gracious and compassionate. That's how they prayed in the Bible. And it's how we pray as well. I certainly find that we come, we have prayer meetings where we gather and we pray after things and quite often we'll use a scripture to pray for something and we pray that scripture back to God. I don't know where I learned that. I don't know if somebody told me to do that like I'm telling you today or whether I just heard other Christians doing it and copied it because that's often how we go around that circle of becoming unconsciously incompetent. We, we observe something in other people and we copy it. So we'll skip the slide of Exodus 34, Peter. Um, so, uh, but I just want to think a little bit about this because it's so good to quote God back to himself and to imitate others. So most likely if you've learned to solder or to do plumbing work or to program a computer, you probably learned it by watching someone else and copying them. 
You might have had some lessons and been told things for your head, but you probably learned it. Because you see, you, you can't be told in a book how tight to tighten that nut or bolt or whatever. That's something you can't be told. Now, okay, you can get spanners which give you a talk reading and then the book might tell you that for certain things. But a lot of things are learned by doing, and this is good. But also stories. We, we must be careful what stories we tell and what stories we celebrate. Because there are many selfish stories. There are bad stories that will shape you negatively as well as good stories that will shape you well. So, for example, Game of Thrones has made a massive, massive hit, hasn't it, on... Um, I don't know, is it on Netflix or Sky or something? Sky, isn't it? So I've actually read the books. You need to be careful reading some books like these. The reason that, yes, there's some sex scenes in the books, I think a lot more in the TV show. I haven't seen the TV show. But the real negative about the story of Game of Thrones is that evil triumphs quite often, usually, actually. The good, the good people just suffer. But I want to say I don't believe that's true in this world, ultimately. There's something cynical about Game of Thrones, about the success of evil people. So we need to be careful how we listen to these stories. And if we watch films about, that, that's all about acquisition of wealth and physical strength and beauty, we can just end up very dissatisfied with our own lot, somewhere deep inside. And God wants us to set us free from that. Whereas I love that film Shrek, the original Shrek movie. Don't you just love that film? It's a really excellent film because actually ultimately it celebrates, it doesn't celebrate, you know, that Fiona ultimately, you, we all think Fiona's going to end up being the slim white woman, but what does she end up? She ends up being that lovely, cuddly wife to Shrek, who's also ugly. Yeah, I'm sorry, this was a spoiler by the way. Um, sorry if you haven't seen Shrek, you really should see Shrek. It's a great story. It's a very... It is a very uplifting story. The soundtrack is also great fun. Um, and um, the Taken films, if you know those with Liam Neeson, there's, they are very violent. They're very exciting, but they're ridiculously violent. And they really celebrate a story that, that even the good guy has to be violent to rescue. Right? And that is a big myth present in our culture, that violence is redemptive. And the Bible says, no, that's not. God, by the way, is the most powerful being. He's without comparison in terms of power in this universe. But the Bible says that he doesn't save, actually, by his power. He saves by his sacrificial love. And so the, best, the better stories are stories like, actually, you know, Harry Potter is really great because, again, spoiler alert, but the story, they're very moral, they're good and evil stories. And in the end, the, the final triumph is a triumph of sacrifice. That's a good story. Right? That is a good story. It's not a triumph of power, it's a triumph of sacrifice. And that is in accordance with the truth that we find in Scripture. So these stories, we need to be alert to them because they're shaping our lives. And friends, we, we hear a lot of stories. We watch lots of stories happening on TV shows maybe soap operas we like to follow, stuff like this. I want to tell you, these stories are not neutral. They're all adjusting you. Every one of those stories is continually adjusting your heart. It's adjusting how you react. The way they deal with conflicts in films and soap operas you watch, that is writing into you how you will automatically do it. So you need to make sure that you listen to good stories as much as you can and that you... You listen to God's stories, you get into God's word as well. So his word, his ways, 
write yourself, write themselves into you, but also that you listen to stories well. Because you know, I remember having a couple in a previous church where I was a, uh, a pastor, and uh, he was white and his wife was Indian. Very interesting story, actually. She, she, she was oppressed by evil spirits. In so- and this was the symptom that revealed that. Whenever she sat down and opened the Bible to read it, she would just fall asleep like that. And uh, but with expelling the demonic oppression on her life, she was set free from that. Anyway, the husband was a bit weird as well, actually. He wanted to believe in polygamy, right? He was wanting to marry more than one wife. Um, and he was saying, but they do it in the Old Testament. Right? If you've read Genesis, yep, isn't that true? Abraham... Uh, uh, Jacob, who became Israel, they had several wives, yep, yep. And he said, it looks, it's there in the Old Testament, it teaches polygamy. And the truth is, it does not teach polygamy. Polygamy happens, it's not telling you it's a good idea. Because actually, if you, a Jewish commentator called Adler says, you just have to look at the book of Genesis to see how badly polygamy turns out. It's a disaster. Every time there's polygamy in the book of Genesis, it's a disaster. And you're supposed to learn that by observing the story carefully. So then, let's just move along. Verses 10 to 13. We get another, um, another prayer of, and, and about telling stories. All, those works, all your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. So he's still talking about the value of telling stories, of announcing all the good ways that God is working, just like has happened this very morning. Now you might say, oh, I object to this because that's all very well for everyone whose lives work out wonderfully, but my grandchild didn't, get, didn't pass their exams. But... You know, I, my father got sick and died. You should know what my life was like. I've had these terrible addictions. I've got all this pain in my body. I've had all this hardship and misfortune. My business folded. I was left by my spouse and we was in terrible debt, blah, 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 blah. Yes, those things are all real things. But look how David almost anticipates this because he goes on, makes another declaration to self and says this, the Lord is trustworthy in all his promises And faithful in all he does, the end of verse 13, then beginning of verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. This is the God we worship. He's the God, the the ones who are bowed down are those whose backs are bent. It's like, this is is bowed down, but it's because your back is bent, right? You're burdened, you're crushed down. Now, I don't know about you, all around Britain, there are telegraph poles. Have you seen them? I know sometimes on new estates, they bury the phone cables under the ground. But anywhere a little bit older, there's telegraph poles. They're wooden poles, yeah. You've seen them around? Must have seen telegraph poles. Surely nobody here has gone without seeing a telegraph pole, right? You've got one outside our house, your house, yeah. Now, do you ever see a bent telegraph pole? Do you? No? So I guess wherever they... Oh, they might be leaning over. That's a problem, though, isn't it? They want to come and sort them out. But you don't see one that's like, like, like this, do you? A bent one. Because at the place where they get the stocks in of the poles, probably before they even get there, somebody says, uh-uh, that's bent. Can't have that. Agreed? They filter out all the bent ones. They only take straight ones. 
Now, many people think that God only takes straight people. I've got news for you. Actually, he only takes bent ones. God is the God who takes hold of bent people. And he uses crooked people to do his will. Isn't that wonderful? This is the love of our God and the tender mercy. He's gracious and he's, tr- he's made promises and he knows that people are bent and broken. And so he says, I will use broken people. And that's what he does. And that's the confidence then that we bring as we follow God. And so we get to this next prayer then in um, the last bit of it. Uh, he prays again, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. God is being kind to all people, whether they know him or not. He's actually being kind to all people. And then there's a final declaration, verses 17 to 21. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all, who, to all, but especially all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. So there's a calling. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. It's a kind of worship. This isn't a craven fear. This is a, a, a your incredibly great God fear. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him. Those who call on him, fear him, love him. But the wicked he will destroy. God God is a moral governor of this universe and ultimately he will destroy the wicked in a work of power. But right now he has an offer of tender mercy and forgiveness for all people. And so the psalm finishes, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever and ever. And by reading such accounts, we begin to instill into ourselves the kindness and goodness of God to people who maybe they are victims, but maybe they're culprits. Maybe they're child sex offenders or other people. Maybe they're jihadists. Do you know God loves all such people? He wants to take hold of all these bent, broken people, just like he took hold of us. And when we start to feel, well, I'm superior, I was always a straight pole. It's those crooked people that need... No, we need to recognize we are all crooked and God rescues us. Now I want to just finish by playing a story. It's five, about five minutes and um, hopefully the technology will work. I just want to introduce the story before it's played. So this is by... It's an American guy called Daniel Taylor and... Um, he, he thought when his children were young, you know, what would happen if I died before my children grow up? There's so much I would like to share with them, to impart to them. And so he kind of dreamed up a book, to write a book, uh, to write something that he would leave with them. And eventually the book got published. And he realized as he was thinking about what he would like to impart to his children, how the book would work, that the best way would be actually to tell stories, to convey the values that he wanted to pass on. To his children. Now, happily, so far as I know, he's not died, but this is just one of the stories that he's reading from his book. He makes some asides during it. He, he posits a question, and then he tells the story. And I, I always find, whenever I hear this, I don't actually have the book. I've just heard him on, uh, tell the story. I find it deeply moving, and it shows the power of the story. And I pray it would shape your life, as I hope it will shape mine as well. Okay? Ben.
Matthew's question. Papa, this nerd wants to sit next to me at school. Nobody likes him and neither do I. What do you do when someone who's out of it wants to be your friend? And here's the answer. Dear Matthew, there are ways to be a friend to someone without being a bosom bosom buddy. Even an occasional act of kindness can change the way a person feels about life. I'm thinking of Mary, a girl who was in my class once. But let me tell you the story. When I was in the sixth grade, I was an All-American. I was smart, athletic, witty, handsome, especially with a Vaseline wave of hair sweeping back from my forehead, and incredibly nice. I have photographic proof of that, by the way. (laughs) Things went downhill fast in junior high, but for this one year at least, I had everything. It is really a pity when your life peaks in sixth grade. (laughs) But it was a great year. Unfortunately, I also had Miss Owens for an assistant teacher. Miss Owens was a college girl who was practicing on us. She helped Mr. Jenkins, our teacher. Miss Owens also went to my church. She knew that even though I was smart and incredibly nice, there was a thing or two I could still work on. One of the things you were expected to do in grade school was learn to dance. My parents may have had some reservations at first, but since this was square dancing, it was okay. If you were raised fundamentalist, you know these little distinctions. Every time we went to work on our dancing, we did this terrible thing, and I mean it when I say it was terrible. I hope this kind of thing isn't done anymore. anymore. The boys would all line up at the door of our classroom, then one at a time each boy would pick a girl to be his partner. The girls all sat at their desk. As they were chosen, they left their desk and joined the snot-nosed kid who had honored them with his favor. Believe me, the boys did not like doing this. At least I didn't. But think about being one of those girls. Think about waiting to get picked. Think about seeing who was going to get picked before you. Think about worrying that you'd get picked by someone you couldn't stand. Think about worrying whether you were going to get picked at all. Think if you were Mary. Mary was a girl who sat up near the front on the right-hand side. She wasn't pretty. She wasn't real smart. She wasn't witty. She was nice, but that wasn't enough in those days. And Mary certainly wasn't athletic. In fact, she'd had polio or something when she was small. One of her arms was drawn up, and she had a bad leg. And to finish it off, she was kind of fat. Here's where Miss Owens comes in. Miss Owens took me aside one day and said, Dan, next time we have square dancing, I want you to choose Mary. She may as well have told me to fly to Mars. It was an idea that was so new and inconceivable that I could barely hold it in my head. You mean pick someone other than the best? The prettiest, most popular when my turn came? That seemed like breaking a law of nature or something. It was like purposely trading a Mickey Mantle card for an Andy Pafko. Who wants Pafko when you can have Mantle? Who would pick Mary when there was Linda, Shelley, or even Doreen? And then Miss Owens did a really rotten thing. She told me it was what a Christian should do. I knew immediately I was doomed. I was doomed because I knew she was right. It was exactly the kind of thing Jesus would have done. I was surprised, in fact, that I hadn't seen it on a Sunday school flannel board yet. Jesus choosing the lame girl for the yeshiva dance. It was bound to be somewhere in the Bible. I agonized. Choosing Mary would go against all the coolness I had accumulated. It wasn't smart. It wasn't witty. Maybe it was nice, but even I didn't want to be that nice. The day came when we were to square dance again. Mr. Jenkins told Miss Owens to go up to the cafeteria to set up. Then he lined up the boys by the door. It was worse than you think. If God really loved me, I thought he will make me last in line. Then picking Mary will cause no stir. I will have done the right thing, and it won't have cost me anything. You can guess where I was instead. For whatever reason, Mr. Jenkins made me first in line. 
Had Miss Owens been talking to him? There I was, first in line, my heart pounding. Now I knew how some of the girls must have felt. The faces of the girls were turned toward me, some smiling. I looked at Mary and saw that she was only half turned to the back of the room, her face staring down at her her desk. Mr. Jenkins said, okay, Dan, choose your partner. I remember feeling very far away. I heard my voice say, I choose Mary. Never has reluctant virtue been so rewarded. I still see her face undimmed in my memory. She lifted her head, and on her face, reddened with pleasure and surprise and embarrassment, all at once it was the most genuine look of delight and even pride that I have ever seen before or since. It was so pure that I had to look away because I knew I didn't deserve it. Mary came and took my arm as we had been instructed, and she walked beside me, bad leg and all, just like a princess. When we walked into the cafeteria, Miss Owens was already thumping out a march on the piano. She looked over at Mary and me, coming in at the head of the line, and she smiled real big, but with no surprise, like she knew all along. Linda and Shelley came up to me later, and in the caddy kind of way said, Miss Owens made you do that, didn't she? I said no, and I wasn't lying. Miss Owens didn't make me do it. She had asked me to do it. She had told me I should, but I had chosen Mary, and I was glad. Mary is my age now. I never saw her after that year. I don't know what her life's been like or what she's doing, but I'd like to think she has a fond memory of at least one day in sixth grade. I know I do love Papa. It's powerful, isn't it? Do you understand? So invite you to stand. And maybe you feel you're quite a bent stick you don't know how God would ever deal with you or I want you to know so tenderly that our God is a God who comes and chooses bent sticks that's why it's just what Jesus would do to choose Mary he's actually choosing you Just open your heart right now to just let him call you to say, I choose to dance with you.